0: All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. Almost done with this great book. Still got a little while, but seems like we're on the home stretch at least. And we've had some pretty dark and gloomy weeks uh, studying the life of Joseph. A lot of wrong been done to this, uh, this young man and Last week, we entered into new territory. Back in the in the matter of a day, maybe even a few hours, Joseph went from rotting in the king's dungeon to riding on the king's chariot as second in charge of all of Egypt. Imagine that. You go from the dungeon, you change your clothes, you're put there on the, on the king's chariot, and, and the people of Egypt are bowing down before you. Nobody would have seen this coming. I mean, how does a kid who gets sold into slavery by his brothers— gets falsely accused by his master's wife and, and again, then ends up forgotten about in prison, end up to the point where he is lofty and exalted. Well, I think it's because there are no accidents in the mind of a sovereign God. And so it seemed like decades of chaos and confusion in Joseph's life was actually part of a calculated plan by a sovereign God. God was orchestrating everything behind the scenes. And by orchestrating things, he's going to preserve the, the Messianic line. He's going to save Israel from a worldwide famine. He's going to bring salvation to the whole world. But before jumping into chapter 42, I wanted to get a running start in 41, because I think we kind of breezed through this, uh, these verses uh, last week and focused on Manasseh. Remember what Manasseh meant? Manasseh meant uh, the for- forgot my past troubles. And Ephraim meant doubly fearful, or fruitful, sorry. And so here you have Joseph who, who, who names his kids based on what's going on in his life. God has been so good to him that, that he was able to forget his past troubles and, and become doubly fruitful. And so I want to read those verses again just to get a running start from where we're at uh, today. So Genesis 41, beginning in verse 53. Well, yeah, 53. Um, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Now this is exactly, I mean precisely, what Joseph and how Joseph had interpreted the king's dreams. Seven years of plenty that's going to lead to seven years of famine. So seven years now have have passed, and and we move from a a global scene to a local scene. And we saw as we, we finished that passage that The the famine was severe in all the earth. And what we're going to see this morning in today's passage is that God is going to use Joseph. He's going to use his his past and he's going to use the wisdom that he has and and, and the fulfillment of the dreams that he's had, uh, along with the guilty consciences of his brothers. And he's going to use all of that to demonstrate to the people of Israel that they have a very faithful God. And we haven't talked much about the conscience ever since uh, Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis 3. The conscience is, is a funny thing, isn't it? it? The conscience gives us feelings of, of guilt uh, and anguish if we violate it. And, and the conscience is what gives us these great feelings when we follow it. It feels good to do good, doesn't it? And it feels bad when you do bad. <laughs> That's your conscience. That's the way God works. And the first time we see the conscience in action is, is right after Adam and Eve sinned. Remember, they tried to, to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves and, and they're hiding from God in, in fear and, and they felt guilty. Why did they feel guilty? Because they did what they knew they shouldn't do. Remember God's question who told you you were naked? Like we were hiding because we were naked. Well, who told you you were naked? You've been naked a long time. You've been naked literally your whole life. And now you noticed it? What happened? Well, their guilty conscience accused them of their sin. In Psalm 32, David said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. You know, everybody has a conscience. Believers, unbelievers... Jews, Gentiles, religious people, not religious people. And these consciences we have, they warn us when we've done wrong in order for us to get right. Now, there are some people who do wrong for so long that their conscience no longer bothers them. You don't want to get to that point. It's actually a sign of the end times. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, and in later times... Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars. And then it says, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, this, this is a calloused uh, conscience. This is a hardened conscience. This is the person that doesn't feel anything. There's no guilt when they're doing wrong, they, they sin without hesitation. But not only do they sin without hesitation, they demand that you celebrate their sin with them. They don't want just acceptance, they want, they want celebration. And so this callous, this callous conscience, it even deludes themselves into thinking that all is well with their soul. I mean, is there any shortage of churches who are just promoting the uh, sinful lifestyle? Churches. I'm not talking about the secular world. Churches. They, they think that, that sin is good. That wrong is actually right. It, it reminds me of the book of Judges. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It wasn't that they were doing wrong and then trying to justify their wrong. Or explain away their wrong. They actually thought wrong was right. I believe that's the times we're living in as well. Callous consciences delude themselves into thinking that all is well with their soul. Thankfully, that's not where Joseph's brothers are at. Okay, they haven't gone that far. It's been 20 years now. 20 years since they sold him into slavery. They haven't heard about him. They haven't heard from him. But they haven't forgotten him. And they haven't forgotten what they did to him. Because their consciences wouldn't let that happen. So let's just start... In verse 1, we're going to do uh, 42, 1 to 28 this morning. But let's start in verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? Okay, so this is in the first year of the famine. We, we find that out from Genesis 45. So that means Joseph is around 37 years old. The, the famine is not just in the Egyptian territory. It's, it's affecting the people of Jacob or the people of Israel. And I really like how how Jacob confronts his sons. Why are you standing around? Everybody's hungry. And you're standing around doing nothing about it. You guys have to do something about it. And so point number one, if you're taking notes, is simply this, is a conscience awakened. A conscience awakened. Remember, these brothers have no idea what's happened to Joseph. Joseph has no idea what's happened to them. But when Egypt is mentioned, something happens. The phrase he uses here is, why are you staring at one another? You know, that can be literally translated this way, to look questioning, questioningly at one another. Egypt is mentioned, it's like, whoa. We've been living with a secret for 20 years. A secret we don't talk about. A secret we don't joke about. But the secret never left him." You mentioned Joseph or you mentioned Egypt and, and you can just imagine the guilt that they had. I mean, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe there are places that you don't ever want to go back to. You don't ever want to see. You, maybe there's, there's people that you, don't, you hope you never run into in any situation. And so one word or, or of that person or, or of that place and, and your palms start sweating. For these brothers, that was Egypt. Because they knew what they did to their brother. Look at verse 2. He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. So they have a need. God has awakened their conscience with a need. What's their need? They're hungry. God created a crisis. He created a, a famine to awaken their conscience. By the way, that's often how God works. He allows crises to happen in our lives, to to move us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And, And listen, that's an important thing to understand, that God allows and sometimes even creates these crises in our lives to move us from where we are to where he wants us to be, which tells us that God is with us in our trials, right? He's not separate from us. And if we don't get that fundamental truth, like if we, if we don't see a good perspective, a proper perspective of God in the midst of our trials, then when trials come, what happens to our faith? It's certainly not strengthened. In fact, it's probably weakened. If our, if our belief about God isn't strong enough to, to, to withstand trials, then what happens to our trials is our trials become excuses to sin. Because for some reason, God let me down. He didn't do what I expected him to do. Never been there before. Have you ever had a trial so difficult that you actually think that God abandoned you? So we, we read the story of, J, of, of Joseph, we see all the tragedies, and we, we can read through it like it's not a big deal. You know why? Because we know the end of the story. Like we know what happens. Easy to trust God when you know the end of the story. Easy to trust God when you look at Jacob's life and go, yeah, but by the time you get to chapter 50, all is well. Have you read the end of your story? Like, I don't know what's going on now, but I know the end of your story, right? Revelation 21, look at it, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's your story. So why are you worried? Every trial is going to be gone, every tear is going to be gone, all the pain is going to be gone at the end of our story. You see, we we know the end of Joseph's story, but Joseph doesn't. What do they know? What do the brothers know? Man, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And the only place that has food is Egypt, but I don't want to go to Egypt because what we did to Joseph. But they have no choice. They have to go to Egypt. Look at verse 3. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob had 11 sons, but he only sent 10 because the son of his beloved one, Rachel, the one who's dead now, the only child left, Benjamin, I got to protect him. I lost Joseph. I can't lose Benjamin. There's still favoritism, right? I mean, but imagine if Jacob knew what we know. Imagine if Jacob knew the end of the story. What if the only reason there was grain in Egypt was because God sent Joseph ahead to make sure there was grain in Egypt? God knew 20 years from now, there's going to be a big famine that's going to go all over the world. I got to save my people. Look at verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Imagine being Joseph. Had to completely be freaked out. I mean, he's pushing 40 years old now. And those dreams he had when he was 17, about his brother's bowing down before him, that's like coming true literally right in front of his face, and his brothers have no clue. What did his brothers know? We're hungry. We're hungry, And, and our lives and the lives of our family are literally depending on this Egyptian official. That's it. That's all they know. We know more. Right? We know God is working. We know God is orchestrating all this behind the scenes, that He has a plan. We we know that Joseph's life hasn't been this, this stream of good luck and bad luck and good karma and bad karma, right? We we know that it's been perfectly directed by a sovereign God literally every step of the way. And we know that God is awakening their conscience. Point number two. Not only does our conscience need to be awakened, we need a conscience that's tested. This test that, that is going to come down, while it is absolutely brilliant. Look at verse seven. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, "Where have you come from?" And they said, "From the land of Canaan to buy food." I mean, now you're Joseph. Imagine being Joseph. I mean, what are the questions you have? Part of it's got to be, is my father still alive? What about Benjamin? Is Benjamin okay? You better not have treated him like you treated me. He doesn't say that. You know what I think he really wants to know? Have my brothers changed? What's different over these last 20 years? Is there remorse? Do they brag to their friends about what they did to me? Do they weep when my father speaks of me? I mean, do they even think of me at all? Who are these men now that did so much evil in my life? The last time you saw them was 20 years before. And and they were selling him to a random group of travelers. Now later on, we're going to read that that Joseph doesn't reveal his identity to them and speaks to them through a translator. Listen, if you've never spoken through a translator, it's a real art to be able to do well. And he says he spoke harshly to them. How do you speak harshly through a translator? Because they got to just repeat what you're saying, right? Where are you from? Where are you from? Some translators are really good. They get emotional, and they get, but some are just like, no, just, just the book, where are you from? Who's your dad? And, and he speak, but he says he's speaking angry. Now, I don't think Joseph's anger was out of revenge, or harshness, I'm sorry, was out of revenge. It wasn't out of anger. Why do I not think that? Well, I, I remember last week we read that the people around Joseph recognized that the Spirit of God was evident within him. When you, when you watched his life, there was something about him that, that pagan people, polytheistic people are thinking, you know, the Spirit of God has to be with that young man over there. And the brothers just went to Egypt to get grain. They, they didn't go to Egypt in, in hopes that their conscience would be tested. They weren't going there to think, well, maybe my conscience will be awakened. In fact, they were probably just thinking, Egypt is the only place I can go to that will still live. Boy, I hope we don't run into Joseph, but God has so much more in store for them. Look at verse eight. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Last time they saw him, he was seventeen years old. Lots can change in twenty years, right? Plus, Joseph is an Egyptian. I mean, he's living like an Egyptian. The men in Canaan they wore long beards at this time. The men in Egypt were clean shaven, so he looks like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just like, man, this is gonna be such a dad joke. Yeah. Um, thank you. Plus, I mean, if, if any of them, even if they thought, well, we might run into him, they probably thought that they'd, he'd, they'd see him maybe as a common slave. Maybe he's maybe a beggar on the streets. I mean, he's the last person in the world that they would expect to see on that day in that position. So he recognizes them, but they have no clue who he is. Look at verse nine. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended part of our land. And so Joseph was not playing games with his brothers. Right, he, he, he named the one Manasseh. The, the goodness of God is, has made me forget my past. And now he remembers. Because God brought those dreams back to his mind. And he realizes, I believe, that, that he's now an instrument for their instruction and for their correction. And the first thing he does, he calls them spies. Look at verse 10. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, we're not spies, right? We're, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Look what he says. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our, our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers and all, the, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer, what's he say? Alive. We're honest men. We're not spies. We're honest men. And and, and so we're so honest that the one that, Benjamin stayed back, but the other one, the other brother that we're talking to actually right now is dead, except he's not. Okay, so what expression is on your face if you're Joseph? I mean, what self-control Joseph has here? Remember, and this is, he's speaking through translation. So he's hearing it twice, right? Because he he knows the the Hebrew language. He knows his language. He's hearing this twice. He's got to sit there and and fake the, the look and wait till the translator translates it. So they're talking about him while talking to him. But they don't know they're talking to him because they think he's dead. I mean, can you imagine? What if they say... Well, what really happened, I mean, we're honest men, and so we were jealous of our brother because he was our father's favorite. In fact, he bought him a coat, made his brand new coat, so he's no longer part of us like, helping with sheep right now. He's, he's, the, you know, he's the foreman now because he can't get his coat dirty. So we were jealous of him. We got mad at him. He's checking up on us all the time, and so we threw him into a pit. But we don't feel bad that he's gone. He deserved what he got. They give no details at all. You know what they're doing? They're just trying to save their necks and fill their bellies. That's it. They, they just, they're they just hungry. And so we're honest men, you know? I mean, maybe they, they repeated that lie to themselves so much that they actually believed that what they did was right. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your brother, youngest brother comes here. Now listen, there's a really important word here. Circle that word tested, tested. You, you see this word elsewhere in the Old Testament. Jeremiah six, verse 27, it says, I have made you an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and assay their ways. I had to look up that word assayer. You know what it means? It's a fascinating word in light of what this, the, the test here. It says, one who tests or, for its gold and silver content. How do you think you test ore for gold and silver content? You put the fire to it. You turn up the heat. You melt it. It's the same word the psalmist used. Look at Psalm 66, verse 10. You have tried us or tested us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. So Joseph is putting his brother's feet to the fire. He's testing them to see if they've really changed and who they are now. He knows who they were when he was 17, right? He's got scars to prove that. But now he's spent the last 20 years being tested, and you know what? Now it's their turn to be tested. Let's see if you've changed. He wants to know if the same guys that left him for dead are still the same guys they were then. Personally, I think a big part of him wants to know how they're treating Benjamin. And so, what better thing to do than to make this all about Benjamin? Look at verse 16. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So, they put them all, so he put them all together in prison for three days. Think about these brothers. We just came to get grain. We were just hungry and we needed food. And Joseph is going to remove every distraction from them by removing their freedom. And he's going to leave them to have to deal with their conscience. Do they feel guilty about what they did? Listen, guilt's a good thing. Guilt is what gets us to repent. Guilt is what gets us to do it right. One of my favorite quotes, Nicholas Allen says, if you feel guilty about something, it's probably because you are deal with it biblically. Putting them in custody for a few days, they're going to get a glimpse of what his life looked like for the past 20 years. It's a bit of poetic justice, isn't it? Those brothers who oppressed Joseph, you know what's happening to them now? They're being oppressed. The brothers who accused him of spying, remember they accused him of spying when they told their father what they were doing? Now he's accusing them of spying. The brothers who threw him into a pit, he just threw into prison. You know the big difference between what they did and what he did? Is he shows them mercy. He does. He's the prime minister. Nobody would have questioned him at all if he had them killed on the spot and then sent a crew back to Canaan to get his father and Benjamin. Done. Verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. Three days in prison, that's a a light sentence considering, right? But I think the most shocking part of this verse, verse 18, you see it? I fear God. What in the world does the Egyptian governor have to do with fearing God? That had to be a shocking statement. He's saying this, listen, I, I fear the same God you fear. I worship the same God you worship. I honor the same God that you honor. So you really get a glimpse into into Joseph's heart here. He didn't want his brothers to fear him as much as he's wanting them now to trust him. And if they were wise enough to realize what this meant, it would bring great comfort to them, but they're not. Look at verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. And what Joseph is saying there is, you call yourselves honest men? Prove it. Prove it to me. Prove to me that you're an honest man. Prove to me that you're not spies by one of you staying in prison and the rest of you going home and bringing your brother back. And I believe they reluctantly agree because they don't think there's no way in the world that our father is ever going to let Benjamin come back here. There's no way that dad's going to let Benjamin leave. Look at verse 21. Then they said to another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Uh-oh, There's, you see the conscience here. Truly we are guilty because our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. <laughs> so they've got this guilty conscience. It's alive and well. You see why I said that they don't have a, 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 a seared conscience or a hardened conscience, a callous conscience? They, they still remember. So this is good, Right? They, they knew that they've gotten themselves in this complicated mess and it has to be from what we did 20 years ago. Verse, or point number three is this is a conscience revealed. <coughs> it, it's, really, it's really alarming how quickly they associated the events that they were going through with the sins, with the way they sinned against Joseph. This tells me their hearts aren't calloused. That's good. Since they, since they think that he can't understand them, he gets to hear their side of the story of the worst time in his life without a filter. They think he literally has no idea what's being said. But, but Joseph, he, he gets this, this unfiltered truth. I mean, it's one thing to be betrayed by an enemy, right? But these are his brothers, And and, and you know what he's hearing? Don't you remember the distress of his cries? Don't you remember how he pleaded with us? Don't you remember that that we wouldn't listen to him? None of that gets translated, but it doesn't need to because Joseph already hears it. That's why we're going through all this. Remember how he begged. Remember how he cried. I mean, he he wanted his brothers not to harm him, and, and these memories, I'm sure, are just flooding his soul. Those feelings of abandonment and betrayal and confusion and hurt, they've got to all just be rushing back to him. And and like listen, I know some of you guys, you get that. You've been hurt like that. You've got scars like that. You remember those tears, you remember the fears. That's where Joseph is. Joseph is remembering what he thought he forgot. And in one sense, he's, he's moved on. But let's be honest, how do, you get, how do you move on from that kind of tragedy? How do you forget that? I think for the first time, Joseph is hearing that Reuben asked him to stop. First time. We have no record of this otherwise. Look at verse 24. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before his eyes, or before their eyes, sorry. Joseph is so overcome with emotion. He just, he has to leave, like just, just go and weep. And he comes back and, all right, back to business. He ties up Simeon right in front of them. He keeps him as a prisoner. Because if, 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 if I tie up Simeon, that means Benjamin comes back. But why Simeon? I, I don't see where the text really tells us. I think, I think he must have volunteered. When did he volunteer? Maybe it was during those three days in prison. Listen, guys, if somebody's got to stay back for you guys all leave, I'm willing to do that. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. Listen, this is not a practical joke. Joseph is being intentionally kind. Joseph is a spirit-filled man, man in an elevated position who is not overcome by evil, but has decided to overcome evil with good. He's being kind to them, even though they haven't repented. There's not been a confession. And so that his kindness is purely an act of grace. He demonstrates love for them and care for them before they did anything to deserve his love and care. Look at verse 27. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money and behold, it was at the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned. And behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? We don't know which of the nine brothers opened his sack to find the money. What we do know is all of them were scared because of it. We also know who the brothers think did it. They don't blame Joseph. They say God did this. And so this is a test. From Joseph, sure. Also from God. Because what they will do with with the money is going to reveal where their hearts hearts are. That's what Jesus said, right? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. But doesn't it seem strange to you that their hearts are afraid? They literally just won the lottery. They're going to be able to save their family and and, and their hearts sank. Instead of being happy, they're scared. Well, why are they scared? Well, probably because they were already accused of, of being spies. Now they're going to be accused of being thieves. Why? Because of their conscience. The conscience was convicting them. They, they were guilty of what they did to Joseph and they knew it. And so even when the kind things happened to them, they, they couldn't even deal with that. And, and then we just stopped the text right there. And I wish we could have another hour because we could finish the rest of the chapter. So it's an awkward place to to stop, but we'll pick up there next week. But let's get some application here. What do we do about our guilty conscience? Number one is prepare for famine. Now when we think of a famine, we, we typically think of a famine being a lack of food or water. That is not the problem in the majority of our lives. I often you know, laugh on, on those Saturday nights, the last Saturday of every month when we do a prayer meeting together. And, uh, and I drive by, I think it's on the corner of 36 and 7th, and there's a guy standing with a sign for free food. And I think, wow, what a fortunate country we are. That we actually have to market that there's free food. Like we, everybody has such a need that Hey, we, we have to tell you, we have to advertise for free food. But if you want food or water in Marion County, there are numerous. The last I knew, there were 17 hot meals in our county available each day. If you could get to each one, there are 17 hot meals a day. Put on by churches and put on by local um, organization. So I'm not talking about that kind of famine. I think there's a kind of famine that's more relevant uh, to us and The prophet Amos spoke of this. Look at Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. I, I believe this is something that happens in the last of the last days, but I think we're seeing signs of that already. It seems that those days are real close to us because The churches now are exchanging God's Word for emotionalism, fog machines, and light shows. Honestly, I wish we had more pastors who would just stand in a pulpit and then open God's Word and just preach it. If you want to hear God's Word, preach it. You don't have to dress it up. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to walk like an Egyptian. None of that. You just preach it. It's just God's word. Spurgeon said this. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. And and the closer we get to these days, the less desire there's going to be for God's word. Don't, Don't be that person. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. We don't need flashy, attention-seeking pastors, Owen Strand said. He said, we need steady and stable men who are anchored in the gospel and willing to shepherd the sheep through sound doctrine and kindness. We need to sit under faithful teachers like that and then live out what the scriptures tell us and then be faithful teachers ourselves. That's what we saw in Ezra, right? Last week or the week before. Ezra had sought to study the law of the Lord and then to practice it and then to teach it. You study it, you practice it, and then you teach it. And, And the more you learn God's word, then you know what happens? You're never satisfied the more you want. The more time you get in God's word, the more time you want to be in God's word. The less time you get in God's word, the less hungry you are for it. And so for a little while, it may be just a duty. You just, it's, it's, it's six o'clock in the morning. That's what I do at six o'clock in the morning. I study God's word. And the more you're in God's word and more you're in God's word. Next thing you know, it's 7.15. You go, I needed to leave at seven. Oh my, I'm going to be late. That's okay, right? You just, it's just a hunger. It's a drawing. And, and I see it with you guys. But the less you are, you want it. And so prepare for famine. Number two, pursue reconciliation. <laughs> you know, if you're walking with Christ, change happens. Like you can't help but change. There may, th- there may be things in your past that you wish never happened, but praise God, he made you a new creation. And the sins of your past may remind you, but the sins of your past don't have to define you. You're new. You're not like a better version of the old you. You're actually a brand new you. Joseph knows if my brothers have changed, it's going to be obvious. If we've changed, then reconciliation is obvious. Repentance is obvious. Dealing with our sin is obvious. Honestly, the vast majority of counseling I do, it's a counseling issue because of sin. They're in counseling because of somebody's sin. It might be their own sin. It might be somebody's sin against them, right? But sin is typically the problem. Just think about every person in this story. Could Potiphar's wife have used some counseling? Yeah, why? Because of what she was pursuing. Could Joseph have used some counseling? Yeah, think about all the difficulties that came upon him. Could Joseph's brothers be, um, uh, have used some counseling? Yeah, think about all the sins that they committed. Think about their life now. Now they're in the famine and their anxiety. How are we going to tell our dad that Simeon's back there and, and he wants Benjamin next? And oh, by the way, we're still dealing with that thing we did 20 years ago. And so the process of, of reconciliation begins with confessing sin. It's dealing with sin properly. You confess it to God. You confess it with the, to those whom you've sinned against. And in some cases, you might even have to pay restoration to the person you sinned against. Did you know that the U.S. government has something called the Federal Conscience Fund? You heard of that? So, so they collect money from people, or they take money, they accept money from people who know they cheated the government anonymously, okay? So people send money for taking army blankets for souvenirs, cheating on postage or on their income tax return. But, but our conscience is they're, they're notoriously weak. So one man wrote to the IRS and said this, I cheated on my taxes, and I can't sleep at night. Here's a check for $100. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest that I owe. <laughs> That's not confession. all right? That's not the type of confession that leads to reconciliation. Joseph's brother's consciences are so rattled that they actually regarded something good as being punishment from God. Why? Because they never dealt with their past sin. And since they never dealt with their past sin, everything was filtered through their guilt. And when your conscience feels guilt and shame, then you need to deal with it biblically. And when you do, wow, the change is evident to all. Joseph knows if these guys have changed, then they're going to be true to the word. If these guys have changed, then they're going to return for Simeon and they're going to bring back Benjamin because that's how repentance works. And the last one, number three, is embrace grace. In a few minutes, I asked Josh if he he could do the song Amazing Grace. Most of you are familiar with the story. I'm not going to share the whole thing this morning, but it starts with amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, written by a guy named John Newton who was a slave ship captain he was a wretch. In fact, he was blind to his own sin. But, but I, I asked the question, like, well, how did grace save him? And, and I think we see it in the second stanza, even though we don't really pay much attention to the second stanza. Sometimes we sing amazing grace out of familiarity, right? And we're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. And like, I know this, but listen to this. The second stanza says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." In other words, grace tells you how wretched you are. Grace breaks you. Grace teaches your heart to fear. The same grace, then, that teaches your heart to fear is the grace that also relieves these fears. That's the work of the Spirit. The grace that teaches fear is the grace that relieves fear. That's what we're seeing in in Joseph's brothers. Not not only are the trials a, a gift of God, right? So is conviction. It's good to feel guilty about something. You know, listen, sometimes you'll feel guilty and, or I'm sorry, convicted in a sermon and you get mad at me. I'm just reading the text, right? Sometimes you're reading scripture and and you get mad at Paul. Sometimes you're going through a trial and you get mad at God. And yet God uses trials to pour out grace. Grace. I mean, just think about the the story we're reading. Without a famine, they never go to Egypt. If they never go to Egypt, they're never confronted by Joseph. If they're never confronted by Joseph, they don't go to prison for three days where their conscience is, is, uh, is tested. Without three days of prison, their conscience is not awakened and they don't get grace. See, trials make us hungry and desperate for grace. You have to embrace the trial if you're ever going to embrace grace. So don't think for a second that these trials that you want so desperately out of your life, don't, don't think that that would be good necessarily. Don't you know that it could be that God is keeping these trials in your life because he knows that, that you would run to worldly comforts and run away from Christ. See, trials keep us in God's word. Trials keep us in prayer. That person who frustrates you every single day of your life could be the very thing that God is using to show show you that your hope is not in humanity. The frustrations you have with your house could be that God is showing you that this world is not your home. God doesn't use hard things to hurt you. God uses hard things to pour out grace on you. Embrace the grace. And he offers this grace through his son. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" Father, thank you for amazing grace. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who, although was righteous, took sin unto himself. He died in our place. And proof that he was was righteous was three days later, he, he rose from death. And so the one who has conquered death is also the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so Father, I pray for us as a congregation, may we be those who don't whine and complain in trials, We look for your grace in them. Father, may we be a church that is recognized because of our love for you through our love for one another. We ask that we would excel in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand. We're going to.